MyTalk Audio is proudly sponsored by Hogstrike USA. Hogstrike is an industry leader in surgical microscopes. A brilliant fusing of Swiss optics, German engineering, and years of experience allow them to produce surgical microscopes, slit lamps, and ophthalmic diagnostics that exceed ophthalmic surgery needs and set future standards for optics, engineering, ergonomics, and imaging. Learn how you can work more efficiently and effectively with Hogstrike at hsmicroscopes.com. Hello and welcome to iTalk Audio, a podcast dedicated to all things in the ophthalmic industry. Um, we are incredibly privileged today to have a wonderful person. Uh, we're going to dive into who he is and what he's done and kind of focus on one main aspect of something that's recently happened to him. But without further ado, I would like to introduce everyone to Lee Singh. Hello, sir. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so the reason I kind of reached out to you to talk to you in the first place is obviously I follow the, some of the trends and things that are happening in the ophthalmic industry. And you were recently awarded a rather prestigious grant that had some fantastic implications for the industry itself. Um, so we're going to talk about that, and that's kind of what we're going to focus on for this conversation. But before we dive in, just kind of say hello to everybody, introduce yourself, tell them what, what you're all about. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to do so. Uh, I'm Rishi Singh. I've been at the Cleveland Clinic now for uh, approximately about 12 years. Uh, I'm a staff surgeon here. I'm a, a vitretinal surgeon, and I've and been in the retina division for that period of time. I also do a lot of clinical studies and clinical research activities, and I'm an associate professor of ophthalmology at Case Western Reserve University. Fantastic. Thank you so kindly. Um, so... The reason we reached out to you is, like I mentioned, you recently won that fantastic grant, and there were five recipients of it. Um, and in particular, the reason I kind of reached out to you as opposed to some of the others is the area that you chose to focus on and use the, the research grant money for was absolutely fascinating to me. So um, if you don't mind, dive a little bit into what you kind of presented uh, to, to be able to be rewarded for that, and then we're going to kind of dive into the nitty gritty of what you'll be, what you're studying, and what your intent is. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, one of the focuses of our of our grant was around the racial and socioeconomic barriers to uh, receiving some of the best therapies we have in retina. We, you know, we we're fortunate in this this field to have such a uh, um, earth shattering and important therapy in the past few years that has really transformed our lives or our patients, and that's anti-vascular endlessly growth factor therapy or anti-VGF therapy. And while there is um, cheaper alternatives like bevacizumab, which is Avastin, um, there are other more expensive alternatives that are out there as well. And there's a cost to care of these patients that goes beyond just the injections. Obviously, the injections cost up to $2,000, but some the offices, it's the time off of work, all those sort of things related to increase the cost of care to their patients. And the purpose of our grant was to focus on sort of those barriers, both socioeconomic and racial, that might actually impact uh, the patient's care and what we might be able to do as providers of this care to better ensure that our patients get the best clinical outcomes by receiving these treatments. Uh, some of the work we were... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. Some of the work that we actually started upon this was a pilot study we did through our patients at Cole Institute where we have analyzed approximately about 400 patients uh, in these various categories and to see what the differences were. 
what we found was quite startling. Uh, those in certain socioeconomic ranges and uh, those of, of African-American or black descent had a very different uh, application of anti-VEGF therapy. They did not show up nearly as much for their appointments or a lot more no-show appointments, but additionally, they did not receive the same number of injections as their uh, Caucasian or white colleagues. And it brings about the question of just why. Why did they receive differential care? Was it their presentation? Was it their difference in, in treatment or their um, the way they came in, uh, in in their first presentation? And so that's what we were trying to tease out from this sort of analysis. And what we found was really quite remarkable that despite the, the differences in care, um, they all had an improvement, albeit that they were related to the number of injections they received. So it's really quite important to, first of all, ensure that we address these sort of barriers to care and potentially have solutions for them at some point in time. And this is fascinating to me because, you know, obviously in the last 10 years and prior, but definitely within the last decade, there's been a lot of focus on racial differences, socioeconomic differences, and how those actually affect people's daily lives. Not just blatant racism, but how the factors of, of how different groups are living can actually affect their their lives and their quality of care. So this this is one of the reasons again that I reached out to you because this is this is so fascinating to me. One of the questions that I would have, and I would assume one of the factors is that the treatments that you're talking about, a lot of that the patient has to come up with out of pocket, correct? Correct. And that and would be definitely a factor when when you have someone who's not on that same socioeconomic status that if they have to put up money themselves. Some people just simply don't have that kind of money to be able to do that. And, yes, I'm sure you, there's financing and things that are available, but that's an added level and step that a lot of people would have to go through. So even just out of the gate, some people are already disadvantaged in being able to receive this type of treatment. Absolutely. This, you know, it's it's difficult, uh, and I don't want to say this is purely a race issue. It's actually a combination of both race and socioeconomic status together. And Absolutely. one of the... The, the the common issues we have here is we can't really tease out them separately. Uh, just because of the power of the study we have right now in our own, you know, small cohort analysis of patients from the Cole Institute, that's why we actually applied for this larger grant to analyze some of the initial findings we saw in our study where you saw less injections in patients with lower or socioeconomic scales to see if that truly really held up in a larger database uh, and was resulting in a larger change in visual acuity potentially in those patients who did not get treatment. But you're absolutely correct. One of the biggest um, issues with the care of these patients is the out-of-pocket costs associated with that. But not only that, just to, uh, beyond the out-of-pocket costs, it's the socioeconomic cost of a day of uh, appointment being, being uh, in a clinic for that reason and missing work as an example. Um, the average diabetic, as an example, has about 25 um, uh, uh, offices a year. Uh, and you can imagine between various offices, that's a lot of time spent, you know, traveling to and from, as well as the missed opportunities they might have because of being in that office. And so as a result, uh, you know, it's a hugely differential scare. If you're a white-collar patient, you might have the ability to have vacation hours. You might even have flexible hours you can do from different places that would allow you to come to the appointments at a given time. If you're on a lower socioeconomic scale, maybe that's an hourly wage you're missing as a result of that. And the purpose of our analysis and our grant we wrote for the IRS uh, registry as well as the research for blindness grant we received was, ta- was to analyze these results and findings in a larger database study that was part of the registry. And that makes perfect sense. You know, if you're working at, say, a, a lower or just minimum wage job, 
where you're not able to accrue benefits, time off, things like that, and you're constantly having to take a little bit of time off. For a, for a lot of folks, that's just money straight out of their pocket. It's not just, oh, I have to take the afternoon off and go to a doctor's appointment. It's money that's literally being taken away from them to pay bills, rent, mortgage, what have you. So I imagine as this study progresses that, and you study a much wider audience, that that's going to be probably a very large determining factor in what you're going to find. That's more of a guess on my part. But that does bring up a question. Going in and being able to look at all this massive data, and we'll get into what that actually is in a second, but being able to do that, are you going in looking for specific things, or are you just kind of going to analyze the data set and see what it tells you? Are you, are you do you have like yeah. a checklist of items? Is this is this a thing? Is this a thing? Well, I think one of the first things we can obviously see is is uh, the importance of what their presentation is at baseline. Do patients of sure. different socioeconomic or racial differences come in with a, a difference in baseline presentation? Um, you know, there's been uh, large studies of Hispanic populations in the Latino eye studies in, in, uh, that were done in California where they showed uh, huge differences in their presentation and their progressions to diabetic retinopathy instead of other conditions that might be out there that would lead to blindness in these populations. Um, and, and the same is true of, of what we want to evaluate here, and we don't know the answer yet, but that's sort of the first question in our minds is, is the presentation at baseline different in the populations? Now, one of the limitations in the initial analysis we did of our own patients here is we have a very white and African-American community in Cleveland, Ohio, but when you add the IRIS registry, you get a very diverse population of patients who are coming to eye care providers across the country. And so it gives you the power of, of looking at various uh, racial differences in that group. The second thing that I think is, is going to come out of this is, is not only the utilization of these anti-VEGF drugs in the populations, but more so uh, than that, I think it's going to look at the progression of patients to vision-threatening retinopathy complications. And what do I mean by that? Well, a patient might have diabetic retinopathy and, and develop a vision-threatening complication, which could include vitreous hemorrhage or attractional attachment, need of atrectomy, all those sort of things that, that are considered to be uh, vision-threatening complications that are that may worsen because of the disease state being undertreated. And the purpose is to say, uh, I think, not only is the vision different maybe in the populations who are treated because of receiving differential anti-VEGF therapy in the first year, but also to see what the effect might be on those secondary outcomes we just talked about now, vision-threatening complications in those patients over time. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes perfect sense. Um, so when when you were awarded this grant, kind of walk us through what that actually means. I, I Going through and looking at, you know, what the, the actual offerings were, uh, they say each grant is worth $35,000. I'm assuming that's access to data as well as the $10,000 they'll be giving specifically to help perform the research. But kind of walk us through what this means as far as receiving this grant, what you'll have access to and what you'll be very specifically doing. Yeah, well, Daryl, first, it's a it's an absolute honor and pleasure to receive any sort of uh, recognition for both our Research Friend Blindness Foundation, RPB, and the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Both have done such wonderful things for uh, focusing science and research in our, our field for the past uh, many, many years. And it's really a, a, a credit, and I, I feel honored to receive that award. The uh, the monetary um, uh, award aside, I think it's the, the bigger piece or, or the bigger uh, ability here is to get access to the data, which is 
uh, hugely important. The IRS registry is full of, uh, I think the last count was uh, 91% of practice in the United States are using the IRS registry, and roughly about uh, uh, you know a couple million patient lives are captured each and every year on the system. So it's a huge ability to get um, a large data set to look at. And it allows us to ask more detailed questions than we could do in any small, smaller scale study that we were able to do in our own institution. So those are two big areas where really this research is, I think, uh, the award is, uh, is added to that ability to get access to the data, but not only that, but to ask the questions we want to do with, with what we're, we're talking about here. Absolutely. Having, having access to a much wider and grander data set you can then go through and say, okay, for our small set, the 400 that we were doing here in the Cleveland area, this is what we kind of saw. It, taking that and, and exposing it to millions upon millions, now you can see, does that hold up? Is this an anomaly for our area? Um, did we miss something maybe that we were, when we were initially looking that suddenly is now apparent when we're looking at, you know, 90, 90% more people, et cetera? I think this is absolutely crucial to a lot of the work that people do in these areas because I've talked with a lot of doctors throughout the years, and you know, many doctors like yourself do research in various areas, and they all have an idea of you know how to move forward in an area or or something. So just like any science, you do a little bit of testing. Does your hypothesis hold up? Fantastic. Let's test it in a broader area. And this, particularly for the work that you're doing, I think is a fantastic opportunity for you to find out if what you're seeing locally is actually true nationwide. Because at the end of the day, if you discover that is the case, then there's a problem, an actual concrete proven problem that you can now address and try to correct. And I think that's brilliant. Yeah, Daryl, that's that's really the, the crux of all these sort of things we do in medicine. We're always remembering the N of one, as I call it. They were the person who you just saw in the room who did something that you didn't expect to see. And unfortunately, um, as, as you realize, a lot of our... Um, uh, our ability to help diagnose and treat patients sometimes are clouded with an, uh, inadvertent bias. You know, we remember okay. that one situation that happened, that one bad outcome or that one rarity that might have t- done, and it sort of dictates how you tend to treat or change your practice pattern based upon that. And and that's not to fault any physician or caregiver. It's more to talk about sort of the biases. That's the that's the beauty of the research we do, and that's actually why my passion has been in clinical research for so many years. I think that what I've been able to surmise from the work I've done is that while what we might initially say, well, oh, our outcomes surgically are amazing or, oh, I've never seen a case like this before, what we realize is actually it's a much wider and broader field than we actually thought about. And there actually needs to be that sort of retrospective look. Now, thankfully, we have um, a very robust electronic record system here in Cleveland that we can ask questions of. But certainly, IRIS is an area where any ophthalmologist in the country who's participating can submit this uh, proposal for the award that I submitted as well and potentially look at their own data and data of their colleagues to kind of make uh, assumptions and make new conclusions about some of the most rarest diseases but also some of the most common diseases as well. So here's one of the the questions that I have, and I'm going to try to get you to get as specific as, as possible just to satisfy mine and hopefully others' curiosity. I'm a marketing guy, so I look at data all the time. You know, I, I try something, how how many clicks did we get? What was the response rate? You know, I'm, I'm constantly looking at data to support the efforts that I do on others' behalf. So data is a, is a very wide range and can be viewed in many different areas. 
how is this going to work for you now having full access to that registry? Are you going to be able to just pull queries out? Do you do you have an interface that they're building? Is it just access that is now granted? How does that aspect of it work for you? Yeah, so it's a great question. So we we uh, at this when we first initially applied for the grant, we submitted an ex- inclusion exclusion criteria and. The Academy uh, funds data scientists on their side to help with the query and the pulling of this data. We initially submitted the query to the Academy as part of this grant, and it included the inclusion-exclusion criteria for the grant. And what we did um, when we met them uh, at the uh, AAO meeting in San Francisco just a few weeks ago is we're actually able to see that query in in live action because now what they've done is they've essentially taken our query that we put together, the inclusion-exclusion, and applied it to the IRS data set with their own data scientists. Uh, We are fortunate that the Academy hires data scientists to work with the the registry, and so therefore as part of the grant we're allowed to get um, uh, the information from uh, the registry using their data scientists to help us. We made some modifications to the initial query, but what we were trying to find is patients who are treatment naive with diabetic macular edema, and we found uh, about 250,000 patients on the first pass of the registry uh, that have naive DME that are treated. And now we're going to ask those questions we we discussed uh, earlier in in the podcast with regards to what are their racial differences, what are the differences on presentation, what are the socioeconomic differences in these patients, and also looking at their baseline factors as far as their vision and intraocular pressure and their ocular comorbidities, and then following them up through there. And so what, what, I, what, what we get essentially is access to their data scientists, the ability to capture the raw de-identified data from the IRIS database, which we can download to our secure system here in Cleveland, analyze, and then p- provide reports on. And the plan is to produce an abstract to submit to the next uh, AO meeting in April of next year and to present this data at the larger stage of the AO next year in Las Vegas as part of this uh, program. Can you, you said you, you know, you, you kind of refined the initial query. Now that you have your, your data set that you're going to work with, when you start to really dive into that, if you discover there's, I don't know, an aspect missing or you just like something a little bit deeper or more expansive, can you now go back to them and say, hey, we want to, we want to kind of correct this and expand it a little bit and this is now the query that we want? Or is yeah, it kind absolutely. of like a one-time, one-time fits all? This is, this is what you get. No, absolutely. This is totally, uh, revisable and, and changeable and they're very good about working with us and, and developing the query to make sure that it meets our standards and our needs. And yes, you, you know, it's coded in a, in a system that is uh, quite easy to use and, while they're data scientists, we have data scientists we employ as well that can help us sort of refine and change that query to uh, a simple couple clicks will make up difference in populations of a couple hundred thousand if we wanted to. And so that Absolutely. they're able to do that, make that change, and help us with that as well. You said your, your, the query that you, the last query that you did, you got over 200,000. Was that kind of the number you were expecting to get? Was that higher or lower than what your expectations were? I think it was actually reasonable. Um, we we knew that they had millions of patients within the database, but uh, the ability to find specific diseases and especially naive treated patients is is probably difficult to do. And um, I still think that the number is quite huge if you compare this to a clinical study. Um, you know, okay. two hundred fifty thousand patients. I mean, compared to the most largest DME trial, that was probably around you know seven hundred eight hundred patients at most. 
in those trials. So maybe up to a thousand if you're lucky. But those are those are uh, nothing in comparison to what we're seeing here. So the power of 250,000 patients is really quite amazing at, at determining differences in disease state, what those treatment outcomes might be. And have you taken an initial look at that data, like you know, broken it down geographically, or, or any sort of things that have quickly popped out to you, saying, okay, most of these 250,000 are coming from, let's say, the south or the northwest, or is it? Did anything? pop out from your initial kind of glance through, or have you not had that opportunity as of yet? No, we haven't had the opportunity, and we just are now downloading the data to our system and going to have it in place. So probably by uh, December, January timeframe, we'll have a really good sense of what uh, what this all means for our data and what, what we're going to see in our patients. Brilliant. A um, couple more questions for you. Um, the first one, how many people are going to be working on this with you? I assume it's not just going to be you pouring over the data. How many How many assistants or, or people are you partnering with to kind of go over this and then draw your conclusion? Yeah, we have a, a team of data scientists here. We have two, two data scientists who are dedicated to this project from Cleveland Clinic as well as another investigator who is working on this project with me as well who's in our laboratory. Um, you know, roughly about four to five people here at Cleveland that are working on this project with the IRIS database people, which they have a bevy of people in their group that are, are data scientists are helping with the query as well. So looking at this big data set that you have, what's your expected timeline for being able to kind of pull information together? You said you're going to be presenting in April, so there's your final goal. But do you have um, like a rough timeline First month of looking, we expect to kind of get general impressions. Second month, we expect this kind of thing. Yeah, you know, we have um, uh, an ability to adjust our timelines as we go along, but I think the goal is to really first get the baseline information to the um, for, ready for presentation and publication purposes within the first quarter of next year. Uh, I think the baseline information will help us drastically understand you know, what sort of things we are looking at and whether we have the power to ask the secondary questions we discussed before. And so based upon that, I think then we'll have to kind of then discuss what the next steps might be in that process. So. And once you kind of have your – once you know what the data is actually telling you, whether it supports the, the current data that you have from your smaller group or it takes you in a completely different direction – What's, do you have a concept of what you're going to do next level? Because I, I assume just by analyzing this data, the, the answer will not be 100%. Oh, we definitively know absolutely everything. You'll definitely have a, a large guidebook, but do you have further plans to try to either expand the study or once you have this information, are you then going to try to come up with either jointly or on your own uh, potential solutions to what the, what the data is telling you? You know, that's a great question, and it's something I think from a quality improvement standpoint we could definitely learn from. We haven't thought about that, but it's certainly something that is reasonable to extend the project into something like that as you go along. You know, obviously one of the, the tougher things to do is once we identify these factors, you know, implementing solutions and implementing the, the things that might help us with this process. I think that that's going to be where we're going to end up with this, but the question will be at that point, you know, do we have – where is the funding coming from? Do we have the ability to help that process? Or maybe it's a simple electronic solution we can employ with those at risk who might develop these sort of uh, issues and, and areas that we might be able to apply and make that um, improved. Sweet. Fantastic. I am, I am very, very excited for you. Being kind of a, a data nerd myself, I, I'm, I'm excited for you to be able to go through and kind of see what all of this information is going to tell you. 
Uh, just from personal experience going through data, quite often what you expect is not what the data actually tells you, and that's always kind of exciting. Um, it's I always think it's a little bit better when you go in with a supposition and that it proves to be the case. You're like, hey, I'm kind of smart. That's what I thought, and here's the data to show that's what we thought. Um, that's not to take away from the severity of what you're trying to address by any means. Um, so as we kind of wrap up, um, are there any things that I might have missed just through my own ignorance that you would like to address or, or talk about in this research that you're going to be doing? No, I think you've covered it. I'm, I'm just excited to, you know, ask these questions. And again, I would ask, I would think as, as I said, to say something to people that are looking for this sort of work to do in the future, there's lots of questions out there to ask. I mean, you just have to sit down in your clinic one day and, and look at your patients and, and try to, um, you know, figure out what the mechanisms of disease might be or what what we can do to improve the outcomes of our patients. And that's that's where we really need more research in our, our field. So, Brilliant. Um, well, Dr. Singh, thank you so much for your time. Before we let you go, um, how can people reach out to you if they have questions about what you're doing or they're just excited and would like to see the, the results down the road or maybe even offer support either financially or just being able to step up and maybe assist in some way, how can people get in touch with you to find out more? Feel free to email me on my uh, email personal email, which is drrishisingh at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, Dr. Singh, again, thank you ever so kindly. I am amazingly excited for you. I wish you all the best, and I look forward to your publishing the results and seeing seeing those in April. Thank you so much again for your time. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye. 